This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 231. We're recording on Thursday, October 12th. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky. We're coming to you from bookriot.com. Hello. Middle of the fall season. Lots happening, a lot of books out, a lot of news happening. So many Just books. So many books. It's been an unbelievable uh, fall for books. Um, I can see what came out this week. I guess Manhattan Beach was one I was had my eye on. Came out last week. You would know mm-hmm. that, that came out last week. Or the, what was the hot yeah. release this week? Oh, now I'm on the spot. Yeah. It's Thursday. Yeah. I'm supposed to remember what I recorded with Liberty on Monday. Forty-eight hours ago. Oh, seventy-two. I'm sorry. There, you, you only have forty-eight <laughs> hours. You have to keep that stuff in uh, short-term memory. All right. All right. Oh, you don't have anything. I can't remember. That's I right. just finally finished Dan Brown. Oh yes. Uh, oh, let's see. No Code Girls. I talked about that is one of those, I think we've talked about on the show Mm. how there's like a trend of history books uncovering things that like big ways that women were involved in, involved in historic moments. Mm -hmm. And last year, maybe the year before there was one about a bunch of women who were involved essentially in the Manhattan project this year, code girls is about the women who were recruited from elite universities, moved to Washington DC during world war II and trained on how to be code breakers. Mm -hmm. And they broke jillions of codes. There were thousands of women recruited for this. They broke a ton of codes that kept people safe, that prevented deaths, that led ultimately to the U.S. winning the war. Mm. Um, A really amazing story. And then... Uh, in like the most Shinsky wheelhouse of maybe all the new releases in 2017, Devotions, the selected poems of uh-huh. Mary Oliver, is out. And it is, it's a gorgeous book. It's a big, thick, beautiful hardcover, this like crisp white cover with a silvery um, design. And it's about 200 poems selected from her body of work over several decades. And what makes this one special against other collections of her poetry is that she selected these poems and sequenced them herself. Mm. Um, I said on all the books that I wish that it came with annotations and little notes about like, here's why I put these in this order or like why I picked this poem instead of this other one. Um, But even by itself, like, I mean, a giant collection of Mary Oliver poetry is a beautiful thing. So those are, are two of Mm -hmm. my faves this week. Cool. Um, let's do our first sponsor and we get into the, the news. Quackery, a brief history of the worst ways to cure everything from Workman, Workman Publishing is sponsoring the show. What won't we try in our quest for? Perfect health, beauty, and the fountain of youth. Looking back with fascination, horror, and a dash of dark humor, Quackery recounts the lively, at times unbelievable, history of medical misfires and malpractices. Ranging from the merely weird to the outright dangerous, here are 67 outlandish, morbidly hilarious treatments exploring their various uses and why they thankfully fell out of favor. With vintage illustrations, photographs, and advertisements throughout, Quackery seamlessly combines macabre humor with science and storytelling to reveal an important and disturbing side of the ever-evolving field of medicines. The authors, there's two authors here. One is Dr. Lydia Kang, who's a practicing physician and a YA novelist. She infuses the stories with medical expertise, while Nate uh, excuse me, um, Nate Peterson is a librarian historian with a knack for telling history's darker tales. That's Quackery, 
A Brief History of the Worst Ways to Cure Everything, out now from Workman um, by Dr. Kang and Mr. Pedersen. No, that's a good... That's a good holiday pick, yeah, too. I know. It's a beautiful book. I can't show it to you through the internet right now, but it's a really <laughs> nice, attractive look. You can uh, give it a Google. Give it a Google. Okay, follow-up time. Uh, here's a story that's... Speaking yeah. of zombies and the undead, here's a story we keep coming back to. So this was a year ago, I guess, or so. Um, a story about a librarian, a longtime librarian at the University of New Hampshire named Robert Morin, M-O-R-I-N, I think it's Morin, um, he left the University of New Hampshire for a million dollars. Um, the details quickly went viral, including on our site. And ever since then, only t- we, we found out later, that we, this is like our third round of follow-up on this, mm-hmm. um, is that only $100,000 of his money to the library, even if it committed one million of it to a video scoreboard for the football stadium. And... Basically, this is the the basic facts are true. He was a librarian for 49 years. He did really amass a fortune of $4 million, and he did keep the fortune secret. Um, so it was interesting, he said, that the, he, anyway, didn't turn shady until the university got involved, and administrators learned of his request soon after his death, and they wasted no time in deciding how to spend it. This is from a Deadspin article, link in the show notes. Mm-hmm. Um I mean, and then so the new revelation here is basically this is this, it's a law, it's worth reading if you're interested in this. It's worth how they basically went about um, breaking down the money. So, one million to the scoreboard, two and a half million dollars to UN, UNH's career center, and a hundred thousand to the library, with the rest to figure out later, leaving that's four hundred thousand dollars, says. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. I don't know how they just... The story, I guess, what do you think the story is about this story? I mean, it's an interesting story, but I guess it's just how this kind of thing happens, where it goes yeah, from I, you know, a feel-good story to, wait, what what happens here? It's, I think there's a couple layers of it. The first was, you know, I was surprised to see a big piece about this which seemed like a relatively insular, like book world kind mm-hmm. of story, show up on Deadspin, you know, like functionally on mainstream sports coverage. Um, that it went from being a story about a librarian who had this, you know, simple and kind of quirky life, being very frugal, donating $4 million to the university, um, into being the, the, you know, the thing we groaned about last year of like, oh, they're using a million of it mm-hmm. onto a video scoreboard. But Deadspin is really, they like, and as you said, this is worth diving into this piece. They're really going deep to show how the university tried to spin this into being a PR win. Yeah. Of like, look, we got this lovely $4 million donation from this interesting man and sort of using the story about Robert Morin and about his life and about how much he loved the library and loved the university and left it $4 million to present good feelings around something that is pretty shady. Um like his, the the funds were unrestricted, and so that's the way that the university was able to do this. Is there were not specific instructions from Mr. Morin about how the money was to be used, um, but it seems that people who knew him are pretty certain that this is not what he had in mind. Uh, and so it's interesting to me to see mains a mainstream sports. Uh, 
site cover mm-hmm. it and go into the angle of like maybe on and like I'm not familiar enough with c- coverage of college sports especially I'm like I haven't seen this show up on uh, Dan Patrick in the morning mm-hmm. but um I wonder if this is getting a lot of coverage in college sports coverage. And if you're listening to the show and you know that, like, are people talking on in that arena about like the University of New Hampshire is doing these great things? They got this huge uh, scoreboard. They're improving their sports program, whatever uh, it is. And so, per, like, it's interesting to me that Deadspin finds it interesting enough to spend 17 months mm-hmm. uncovering the backstory to all of it. There's a lot here. The overall message is the same thing that we knew quite a while ago, that very little of this money is actually going to the library that Robert Morin loved. But um, very rare that we see something that happens in the book world bubble up into big mainstream news mm-hmm. that's not like, there's a new Harper Lee book. Um, so I was interested in the fact that the story exists at all in the place that it exists. Um, and you can learn a lot more about Morin's life as well um, in the piece. It's a good long read. I mean, I think there's there's interesting things here just about him. Like they do, they mm-hmm. clearly interviewed a bunch of his co-workers and colleagues, a very private guy, a very uh, modest guy, Doesn't didn't have a credit card, he didn't travel, he, you know, he had some interests and they were mostly served by reading books and doing his job at the library. Um, I think the other piece that connects with the larger sports world, which do fall a little bit, I mean, I went to the University of Kansas. My whole family did. It's a big sports school, most, mostly for basketball. But the amount of money that gets pumped into sports and also comes out of sports, especially at KU, is, is mind-boggling. And mm. there's a lot of times where it does feel like the cart is leading the horse when it comes to how decisions are made, how things are marketed and branded, and how decisions are made. And there's a lot of... I, I would say rationalization about, well, this is money that would actually is the, the Williams Fund, which is the athletic department's endowment, and it wouldn't have gone to the English department or the anthropology department or the, you know, the orchestra. If, their, if the basketball program didn't exist, it would have gone somewhere else. It's not like value over replacement donation. It just would have gone somewhere else. This is new money that wouldn't be donated to the university if it weren't for it. But then you see moments like this where Again, I know very little about the University of New Hampshire. I don't think it's a football program on the caliber of like Alabama or something like that. But a million dollar for the scoreboard, when it's a librarian donating it, I think what it does is it throws into relief the, um, the, the upside down world of college funding and how much actually gets put into things like sports. Um, versus, you know, what we, I guess, would assume is what a college is about, which is like books and learning and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, f- those leafy fall tweed summer afternoon, uh, fall afternoon. So I-, I think this is just a particularly interesting example because the guy was a librarian and the disproportional amount of the money that did not go to the library, I think made it a great case study to throw this whole thing into relief. And it also raises the question in my mind of, did the University of New Hampshire think this was just such a great idea that no one would object to it? Yeah, like they didn't obviously have to make this we public, spend... right? I mean, that's the thing. Like that's yeah. one of the things Deadspin says is like they thought this was a great feel good story like, until people asked what the money was those, going. Like, what were like what were those committee meetings like mm-hmm. where they were like, okay, this is how we're going to spend the money. We're also going to announce that we have spent the money this way. Did they think it was a genuinely great idea that people would get behind, or did they know that there would be some side eye about? 
about this and they just kind of hoped that no one would figure it out. And I'm not, anytime we have that question, I'm never sure which way I want it to go. Like, right. what's worse? Yeah, what's you worse? genuinely believed this was great or you knew it wasn't great and you hoped that no one would uncover it. Either way, not awesome. I'm glad to see this discussion happening if for no other reason than I guess two things that going forward, other additional librarians with secret wealth who want to donate them to universities will restrict those funds if they want them to be restricted and consider that this is what could happen if they didn't. And moreover, that the institutions that receive donations like this will feel some social responsibility mm -hmm. um, or at least uh, some baseline awareness about how the use of funds from certain sources comes across when redirected into something else. Like librarian money going to a million dollars on a scoreboard, like I just can't even fathom what it is it made of gold <laughs> yeah right I, I mean big projects you know architectural projects building <laughs> projects video projects are expensive like i don't actually question the number for the scoreboard I, I i think that probably makes sense if you're going to build that thing my guess is that the school administrators the people deciding where the money goes at the top level are so in the world of propping up sports that they didn't even realize that someone might say, hey, wait a minute, isn't it weird that a librarian who gave $4 million, only $100,000 is actually going to the library? And I think if $3 million were going to, say, the English department rather than the library, no one would be like, well, only 100000 went to the library. I guess maybe some would. But it wouldn't, be, yeah, it wouldn't right. have the, quite the same. It's like that it went to a football video scoreboard. It's not even like to football scholarships. It's like... And University of New Hampshire is a little school. Like You can basically sit on the sidelines to watch the games. You don't need to look at the giant video scoreboard for an instant re I mean, it's that kind of... Are you saying of, that they don't need a $1 million scoreboard? Well, it's just, it's just, it's so, it's so extravagant and it feels so kind of obtuse in understanding what people care about. And I think it's something they, they wanted to make a big deal. I mean... How many times are we ever going to talk about University of New Hampshire? Probably not that many. So this is a chance for them to tell a story about one of their own, an employee who loved the school, worked his whole life, and gave a whole bunch of money. And they just didn't realize that there's other pieces here that could get on. They just, their I mean, they like whoever was in charge of this narrative just really screwed the pooch. Yeah, they did. Like, it's that's just the there's kind of no recovering from this at this point. No, and um, no. this is what you chose to do with four million dollars that a man like very carefully and scrupulously saved, and it's ungood. Um, and Hopefully, we won't have to hear any more. I, I about can't it, imagine what else. And if the only other story I can imagine us hearing is if they said, "Actually, we're rediverting it. We're rediverting, right, diverting, right. diverting for the first time." Yeah, mea culpa. We're gonna give that money back to the library. That would be great. Um, but that Lincoln Deadspin. It's a long read. It's mm -hmm. worth it. We'll put it in the show notes. Be sure to check that out. Um, moving to other things that are ungood yeah. but l less surprising. Um, there is the first, to my knowledge, study this week about diversity, specifically within romance. Um, it was conducted by Lee, uh, sorry, Leah and B. What is their last name? I just lost it. Coke, um, who owned the Ripped Bodice in Los Angeles. We've talked about that store. It's the first dedicated romance bookstore in the country. Country. And as booksellers with very passionate customers, um, they noticed that they were really getting stuck when readers would ask them for books that featured people of color or were about that that were by or about people of color. So they petitioned twenty of the big romance publishers to gather information about the diversity on their lists, um, and some publishers 
participated willingly and sent the data in. Uh, the, which ones did that are noted in the graphs on this study. Other publishers declined to participate. And so Leah and B went and gathered the information themselves using catalogs and um, presumably Edelweiss, that kind of thing. And then researching the authors mm-hmm. to see who could fairly be classified as a person of color. Um, it's important to note, this is not just because inclusivity matters and representation matters, but 84% of romance readers are female. And according to the most recent Pew Research, Black women with college degrees are more likely to read a book than any other group. So there are a lot of customers, a lot of readers who are not seeing themselves or who don't have any chance to see themselves in romance. The top line number here is that for every 100 books published by the leading romance publishers in 2016, only 7.8 of them were written by people of color. So less than 10%. Um, 50% of the publishers that were surveyed had fewer than 5% of their books written by people of color. And only three total of those publishers out of 20 had at least 10% of their books written by people of color. The best uh, anyone has done is Kensington, which has just under 20%. It looks like it's probably 19 on this graph. Um, 19% of their list um, are books by people of color. Up against, what is it now, about like 35% of adults are yeah. people, people of color. Um, so well, I don't know if it's adults. Closer. It's a good question. I don't know that no, that number we kind of keep in the back of our mind for reference is like what is a benchmark for the US population of people of color? I mm-hmm. think it's 33 to 36%, but I don't know how that breaks down by age. Sorry, I just want to clarify it. Oh, yeah, no, that's I was that. wondering out loud about yeah. that cuz I another number that we come back to is that now more than half mm-hmm. of kindergartners are are people of color, mm-hmm. um, are kids of color. And so that those averages are that's tough math to do, but I think it's around 33, 36%. So at any rate, the best job anyone is doing in romance is Kensington at 19. And that is significantly below parity mm. with the general population. Um, not good. Oh, no, I would say it's not surprising given any familiarity with what diversity looks like in the rest of publishing. Uh, but there are some like HQN, which is a Harlequin, one of the main Harlequin uh, imprints, has zero, um, zero books on their list by people of color. Um, tool publishing, zero. Source books, 2.9. Random House, 1.8%. That's between Ballantine, Bantam, Love Swept. And flirt. Um, let's see. There's some other pretty. Berkeley is 3.9%. Avon Romance, like the big romance imprint. Sarah McLean, Julia Quinn, some of the very beloved popular authors on that imprint. 2.8% of all the authors on that imprint are people of remarkable. color. Remarkable. It's really remarkable. Um, a couple of notes just to throw in here um, from that I thought were interesting. Um, Lee and B. Is that how you say it? Lee, Lee, Leah. Leah and B. They said they 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 knew that that they had that there was a problem with diversity in romance just experientially um, from the books they saw, but also they they talk about people coming in to the store looking for titles by women of color. I mean, this is mostly women writing romance, so I I, I feel okay for now saying mm-hmm. women of color. Um, and they just they kind of were dumbstruck like they didn't have a lot of wrecks to give them um and so that i think that inspired them to like look seriously about something they felt to be true like what is that what do the actual numbers look like another point that's worth talking about here too is 
the um, centrality in romance to digital only and self-published titles, Mm -hmm. which I don't believe are represented here. I believe these are traditionally published print books. Um, If someone knows different than that um, when you're listening to this or read the report or have seen other coverage of this study, please let me know. That matters only because this is not the total field of romance by any stretch of the imagination. Romance, more than any other genre or part of the book world, has really strong digital and self-publishing parts of its ecosystem. I'd be fascinated to know what the numbers look like in that part of the the genre. Um, I think it'd be a lot different. I think there could be a reason why self-publishing and digital publishing are thriving just for this kind of hegemony on the on who gets published uh, on the romance side. Um, so those two things I, I thought were really interesting as well. Um, the other one, they don't break down, I don't believe, absolute numbers and titles anywhere. Um, these are all percentages that you saw. Mm-hmm. Not that it matters necessarily. I, that's one of those things where if you weighted the percentages, like Avon being 2.8%, yeah, I just how many books are we talking about, right? Like you that's know, the thing I don't quite understand because Avon, you're right, is so much bigger than some of these other ones that it's 2.8 percent will actually weigh down forever in King Yvonne, Kensington. I'm and thinking like, like I get a lot of mail from Avon, and up until this year, the only non-white author that I saw coming through from Avon was Beverly Jenkins, mm-hmm. and then this year I know Alicia Rye has who has been self-published in the past um, has a deal. With Avon. So that's two. And each of them, I think, is doing two books per year. Beverly Jenkins might be doing more than that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, it's possible that those two people's books are making up this entire, like, the entire yeah, representation. I have no there idea. Others. This is a thing, especially Jen and Amanda run up against this on Get Booked mm-hmm. when people ask for ask the same questions that Leah and B. Koch uh, are talking about in their store like, about romance by people of color. And when I see it on the site, um, it's Alicia Rye gets mentioned often, Beverly Jenkins, Alyssa Cole, and it gets a lot tougher. Like those are like I can name three off the top of my head, and that is unacceptable for uh, for baseline availability. Yeah, um, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure what else to say about that, but them's the, those are the, take a look at them apples, uh, mm-hmm. you know, as you would say. Um, yeah, exactly. It's just looking at it. It's like how we have the Vita numbers now. Um, I think people have had a sense for a very long time, a, a correct sense for a very long time that there was a big problem in a lack of inclusivity and representation in romance. But now we actually have numbers to start from and to measure improvement. And as you like to say, what gets measured gets managed. Right. So hopefully there will be some management happening. Well, I don't there. just like to say that it happens to be true, but yeah, I do say that a lot. <laughs> um, while we're on the on the romance tip, um, this is actually a couple weeks old at this point, but we didn't get a chance to talk about it on the podcast before now, or I, I think we maybe just forgot to put it in the show notes. Um, the New York Times devoted for the first time ever a cover story to romance, um, which sounds good. Sounds like progress. Sounds like you know this is this is progress. You know, N.K. Jemison has a um, I don't know if it's monthly, but a regular roundup um, towards the back. You know, like a full page roundup of science fiction reviews. Um, that's been really good, and hers are recommendations, and her, her writing there has been really good. Um, they've long done a lot of mystery and thrillers, and there's been calls um, for a long time for the New York Times to pay uh, attention to romance. Um, they have a standing policy, speaking of digital and self-publishing, not to cover books that are only available digitally or are self-published. 
there's some overlap between those two things, but not not a, uh, not total. So there there is some. It's hard. To, it's so hard to cover romance in a responsible way without acknowledging those two things to be true. But at any rate, with all that said, they chose um, much to my bewilderment um, oh. an author I really like, an interesting, respected person in the book world, Robert Gottlieb, who's been an editor of literary fiction for decades. Um, but as someone to give an overview of the state of contemporary romance, a shocking... Uh, it is baffling. A baffling, um, borderline irresponsible... Terrible judgment. Terrible job. I mean, he did a bad job with it, but I think he was put in a horrible position. Well, there are... So there's a couple things there. Like, whoever's idea this was to ask an 86-year-old white man to sum up the state of romance... Bad job. That was a terrible, terrible, plan. terrible decision. But also, Robert Gottlieb, as you were saying, <laughs> is not unfamiliar with the landscape of publishing. No. And sometimes one has a responsibility to know when one is being asked to step out of one's lane and to decline. <laughs> like, why he said yes to this is also a complete mystery to me. Like, it, there are a million people more qualified to do it. Um, and it's even it's just a, it's just an it's odd. just I like I'm lost for words. I've been thinking about this for two weeks, and I don't have anything. I don't have anything nice to say about about how this it's a, it's a terrible plan. One of our writers, Amanda Deal, uh, got herself nice and tipsy mm. as she read through and wrote commentary on it, and you can read that. But just what what's going on over there in the New York Times? You know, you know, it's, this is the, um, book review equivalent of that, um, GIF of, um, Steve Bashimi saying, what's up fellow (laughs) kids? Like, hello fellow kids. kids, Cause it just, it, the the title is is a roundup of the season's romance novels. (sighs) And it's just so, I mean, it's so strange. I can't even, I mean, I can dump on it, but like, it feels we. It's just such an odd flower of a of a thing to to plant it at the times that I don't get. Like, what is the point of like? What is the point of this? It's not for people who read romance because they don't care about Robert Gottlieb. They they don't care about some neophytes, um, you know, you know for encounters with this strange it's, and magical land of romance novels. It's hard for me to believe that this is going to convert you know, what we generally consider the New York Times book review um, audience to be, which is, I still don't quite understand who reads it. I mean, whatever, you know, I guess literary fiction, I guess, is, you know, is, is that's the, dom- and big nonfiction titles and some mystery thrills wrote in. You know, this is not the place that romance readers go. If they're, if, are we trying to get New York Times book review readers interested in maybe considering romance novels as something well, you should read? That was the goal, then it's even worse. That's what I mean. Like, I just, what like, is the goal here? Is it the goal to, like, trot out this, like, is this, like, a dancing bear situation of, like, look at Robert Gottlieb writer out romance? Is that what, because <laughs> that's what it feels like. That's the, that's the explanation that it doesn't make the most sense, but f- feels the most right as a description. Like, it's, it's weird. Whatever it was, the like the existence of this thing in the state that it was published, I think is revealing of mm-hmm. a tone deafness and a lack of understanding about what romance is and what the romance reader is, what the romance community 
is like, and at the baseline, this piece does not do what it intends to do, which is sum up the state of romance, because the writer is starting from a point of not understanding the state of romance and of a deep lack of familiarity. And there's there are tiny things that should never have gotten past mm-hmm. an editor, I think. Like, he notes at one point that two characters in one of the book are African-Americans, quote, though except for some scattered references to racial matters, you'd never know it. Like, how am I supposed to know? Like, what are they supposed to do that would indicate to me that these characters are black? What kind of stereotypical behavior would would reveal that to Mr. Gottlieb? What kind of like that's a, I think that's an editing failure that like that sentence should not exist, mm-hmm. but it should definitely not have been published. There are descriptions like sort of solid declarations about whether the sex in books is good or bad, which is kind of a no no in romance publishing mm-hmm. because it's virtually impossible to declare what kind of sex anyone else thinks is going to be good or bad. And preferences are very wide ranging among romance readers about how much happens on the page and how graphic descriptions should be. So reviews tend to describe how the sex is handled rather than make objective judgments and statements about whether it's good or bad. And it's just, I I can't believe that this was intended to do to, to try to be fair. And if this was a, a piece that was commissioned with people say covering romance is important, we genuinely want to cover mm-hmm. romance, like, wow, they really don't know where to get started. Because the, the whole dancing bear thing then feels mean. Like, you're just finally throwing a bone to the biggest reading community in the publishing world, and this is how you do it? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I don't think this... I I see no way that this was envisioned as something to speak to romance readers. I I just don't see it. If it was, it's as tone-deaf and as misguided as you can possibly be for a a public... The most esteemed publication about books in the U.S. to do something like this is embarrassing. It's embarrassing. I mean, I don't, I don't know. It I, is. I don't know it how is. It's to just, say it. It's just embarrassing. It's there's, just embarrassing. There, like the, there, it's not serious. I don't know if it's, it's not funny. It's supposed to be funny. It's supposed to be cheeky. Maybe there's a lot of like asides and exclamation points and things that I guess are supposed to be ironical, but sort of come across as crass and obtuse. Like, so the, here's a sentence. And finally, there's the redoubtable Danielle Steele, who according to Wikipedia is the fourth best-selling writer of fiction in history, right behind Agatha Christie, Shakespeare, and Barbara Cartland. So first of all, it, isn't it the West Wing that says redoubtable? Like they, they mock using redoubtable because no one knows what it means. Anyway, um, but like <laughs> there's, there's, he's citing Wikipedia to understand <laughs> Daniel Steele in a romance piece about, in a cover story about romance. Like what is that? Like... And and Shakespeare is a fiction writer. And who is Barbara <laughs> Cartland? Who is that? I don't know. What is that? What is that? And then the next the next word is surprise! Exclamation point. I, I, I don't. I don't. It's just. It's sloppy. It's embarrassing. I just don't really understand what they expected Gottlieb to do with this particular piece. He should have said no. He should never have written this piece. <laughs> I mean, I'm afraid he didn't even know to say no, right? I mean, I don't... Right. He just doesn't even know to say no. There's... You have to be... And that's, I think, where 
being an 86 year old white man who's entrenched in a publishing world that has said his opinion has authority for literal decades, many decades is part of the problem. Like in order to know that you should stay in your lane, you have to be aware that you have a lane that like the whole world is not your lane. Mm -hmm. You don't get to, you are not actually informed enough to comment on everything. And if that didn't occur to him, that is a problem. But editorially, I just like putting him in this position was a terrible decision on someone's part. It doesn't, I don't think this serves the paper well. Like I, I imagine a bunch of traditional New York times readers, like sitting around on their Sunday morning, reading this thing about romance and just like, you know, sniffing at it. And like, I always knew that romance was silly. And here's Robert Gottlieb to basically sum that up for me. Like he's not writing with a respect for what happens in these books either. And for what they're intended to do. It's just, this should, it should not have happened. (laughs) It's, I think embarrassing is the right word for it. Yeah. I, I, I don't, I don't understand it. I mean, the fish out of water angle as a you know journalistic trope as a nonfiction trope can be interesting here's i'm entering a world i don't know anything about right like kind of a reportage like mm-hmm. and you look at you can look at something with fresh eyes but to do that well you have to come with a certain humility and respect and a commitment to learning honestly and openly well, about what's going on and a baseline on. awareness that you are a fish that's out what i'm of saying water. yeah there's 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 <laughs> no self awareness about what's going on here it's like it, it seems like the 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 approach, kind of the attitude he took, um, is maybe one step above the general dismissiveness of I, I don't know how to say this mainstream book culture. I mean, we see this on the site. I guess I'll just put it this mm-hmm. way, right? You know, most of our readers are willing to read almost every genre except romance. And the ones that do re- read romance read a lot, but it's like there's very few people who dabble in romance. Like you're the weird duck in that regard, Rebecca, right? That's like true. Yeah, yeah, you're yeah. you're unusual in that regard. Um but there is a a bias against romance among even people who call themselves book lovers. I don't it's not right. It's just that's what it is. And this seems to me like they're taking the angle of that perspective of someone who wouldn't read romance unless they were assigned to do a roundup of romance authors. And I don't understand the point. of I I do not understand the point of that um, in this particular venue. It it doesn't make any sense to me. I'm I'm embarrassed um, for Gottlieb and the Times. I'm sympathetic to the confusion and frustration romance readers um, are clearly having with this this was all over my twitter feed a couple weeks ago um people t- you know i don't think i saw anyone who knows um two 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 sentences about romance saying that this is anything but at best this is nothing and at worst it's very very um irresponsible so there we go there's that <coughs> excuse me let's hear about our next sponsor let's talk the the 57 bus so he, i like i really like this so it's a true story um, by Dashka Slater. Here's the synopsis, then I'll do a little bit more about what it is. One teenager in a skirt, one teenager with a lighter, one moment that changes both of their lives forever. A single reckless act during an eight-minute bus ride leaves one teen severely burned and the other charged with two hate crimes and facing life in prison. The 57 bus is Dashka Slater's true account of the case that garnered international attention and thrust both high school students into the spotlight. It started, uh, the 57 bus started as an article in the New York Times Magazine, and it's beautifully crafted, fast-paced writing, and makes accessible for 
all readers whether narrative nonfiction is in your wheelhouse or not. Look at them write this synopsis, talking hey, points hey. just for us. It's a gripping true story of, a, of, of an agender teen who was set on fire while riding a bus in Oakland, California. And the teen who started the fire makes for an excellent, I'm sorry, and, and it's the story of, of, of the, the teen and then the teen who started the fire. And it's a good book club discussion. The book approaches critical hot-button issues, including gender identity, race, socioeconomic disparity, forgiveness, crime, and punishment in a thoughtful and compassionate way. It's for fans of nonfiction like The Short and Tragic, tragic, like, tragic Life of Robert Peace, as well as True Crime Aficionados. The book presents a riveting, in-depth account of a complex case that got national media attention. That's The 57 Bus by Dashka Slater. Thanks to them for sponsoring the show. Hey, you know, since you mentioned Wheelhouse, I I would be remiss not to shout out that we are doing a limited run of the Books Are In My Wheelhouse t-shirts. If you've been listening to the show, like since the beginning, we did a run of these for the first time when the Book Riot podcast had our 100th episode. Um, And since Book Riot just turned six a couple of weeks ago, and I was out on that show, so maybe Mm. we'll have to, next week, we'll do some sixth birthday reflection kinds of things. I like it. but if you want a books are in my wheelhouse t-shirt, those are on sale through October 16th, probably the day that you're listening to this. Um, so you can go to store.bookriot.com uh, to get your books are in my wheelhouse limited run. All right. Why don't you tell us, what, there, there was one big book story this week. You want to tell us, you know what I'm referring to? Maybe can you... <laughs> <laughs> you know, MacArthur Genius Grants. That's, that's a big deal. Yes. Well, I was looking at like, I have, my tabs could be, interp- several of them could mm. be interpreted as big stories. But yes, the MacArthur Genius Awards uh, came out this week. 24 people have won the MacArthur, they're called, well, you are technically a MacArthur Fellow, but mm. they're widely known as the MacArthur Genius Award. And this is a big deal because you receive it for having shown extraordinary originality and dedication in creative pursuits and a marked capacity for self-direction. And the recipients get $625,000 each, and it's just an investment in their potential. It's paid out over five years with no strings attached. So you can make, pay yourself, you know, a little over a hundred grand for five years and do your art or your creative pursuit, whatever it may be, um, one of the recipients, Jason Delion, who is an anthropologist, said he's going to pay off his student mm. loans. <laughs> uh, but two authors were named among the winners this year, including Jasmine Ward, uh, author of most recently Sing Unburied Sing, but also uh, Salvage the Bones, and she edited The Fire this time, and the memoir, uh, what is it, The Men We Reaped? Yep. That's the memoir. A really phenomenal young writer. Um, and then also Viet Tan Nguyen, who wrote uh, the refugees and there is a newer one the sympathizer i can't the sympathizer yes well no that was Um, last year big deal that was last year but big books um and he is a he's a fiction writer obviously and a cultural critic who lives in la and he was awarded for challenging popular depictions of the vietnam war and exploring the myriad ways that the war lives on for those it has displaced it's there's usually a few writers Mm -hmm. among this list each year. It's always exciting to see who they are and really exciting to think about these folks having five years to just work on the already amazing work that Mm -hmm. they do. And it feels kind of like 
interesting timing since just a couple weeks ago, we were revisiting that notion of how few, especially literary writers, make their whole living just being literary writers. And we were wondering if Jasmine Ward like has to teach or lead workshops or whatever Mm -hmm. in order to um, in order to you know pay all the bills, or if the publishing work was doing that for her. Now she's going to be just fine. Yep, she's for at least five years, at least. Um, Yep. I always like the MacArthur. fellow list uh, interesting people there's painters magicians magicians not magicians this time at least. Um, <laughs> painters musicians community organizers scientists advocates of various kinds um, always an interesting list to see and get familiar with work of people you may not know necessarily it does tell you i mean i don't i've always wondered um because in our world the writers selected this year are if not triple a big names they are certainly a list names in our world mm-hmm. so i don't know like are these theater folks that I'd never heard of? Are they equivalently well known? Are the paint? Oh, you know yeah. what I'm saying? Uh-huh. I'm like, I just don't. Mm-hmm. I'd be fascinated to know. So if you, if you have a cross section, um, and you're listening out there, and you can tell me, like, if you're in the music world or theater world, especially, I know we have some theater folks out there. Um, if these are people that are the Jesmyn Ward equivalents in the world of theater right now, um, I'd, I'd love to know that. So you can tell. Congratulations to to them. Um, to all yeah. the winners. One thing I always think is interesting about this list is that it, it largely features folks in the middle of life. Yeah. Um, most of the winners here are in their 40s. There are a few in their 60s. I think I saw two in their 30s. But this is also a nice counter to a lot of the awards that we see come out, especially this time of year for like five under 35 mm-hmm. or, you know, however many under 50 or whatever, um, that you don't need to have met your greatest success by the time you turn 30. Or if you're 35 and you're still working on your first book deal, or trying to get an agent or whatever it is. There's a lot of room left to do amazing things. Or on the other side where you win the Nobel when you're in your 70s or the Dayton Literary yeah, Prize or the Man right, Booker Lifetime. Right. Like, um, it's a mid-career award for a body of work and also a future body of work, mm-hmm. which is, you know, relatively, I can't think of an equivalent um, I can't think of an equivalent one anywhere yeah. else. I love that notion of it just being an investment. Yeah, in really smart. Whatever you're, really whatever smart. you want to do next, very cool. Um, let me. Could you go to Amazon Corner for a minute? Sure. Yeah, let's let's go down um, down the river. Um, this week, Amazon finally re- uh, released a waterproof Kindle. Ten years we've been doing Kindles, and finally we have a waterproof one. It's the new Kindle Oasis. Um, it's the premium Kindle has the same names last year. So it's a six inch screen. Um, I'm sorry. It goes from a six inch screen in last year's model to a seven inch screen. I don't know if you've seen this it has aluminum back and the, the marked feature of this one that distinguishes it from a design standpoint, it has a pronounced, um, bezel on one side and depending on you hold it, it's mm-hmm. either on the left or right hand side. So if you're, um, I guess right hand, if you're right handed, you hold your e-reader with your right hand. So if your right hand's on the right side so that you basically can hold the the e-reader without covering any part of the screen easily and you can turn it upside down if you're left-handed too none of the other kindles um look like that but anyway yeah it's it's um waterproof and the there was a kobo something we heard Mm -hmm. a couple years a couple years ago um but this one so it's it's a very i mean i've seen this in the store i didn't buy i have a paper white instead because it's cheaper and it's a little bit small and i just can throw it in my bag when i'm traveling or going somewhere else um but this is for those of you who like to read on the beach or by the pool or in the kitchen or, you know, are clumsy and are going to spill your wine. Or I guess the, 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 the use case I always hear mentioned for this is reading in the bath. 
um, which is such, uh, which is so much um, nothing I would ever do that I don't even know. Like, do people actually read in the bath, like with the bubbles and the wine and everything? Yes, Jeff, yes. See, I forget that some people are normal size and can fit in a bath and it doesn't (laughs) feel like returning to the womb. Like... It does. The extreme differential in our sizes in particular (laughs) might come into play here. Yeah, I read in the bubble bath like on a weekly basis. Yeah. Uh, Well, good. Then then this is for you because like if I'm ever in a, like this is, anyway, if I'm in a bath, like (laughs) there's so much of me that's just asses and elbows that's not actually in the water. Like this is no good. This is terrible. I I guess you could read in the shower. You could just like hold, I mean, I guess if you wanted to. It's my... My shower has a nice bench in it, so I guess you sit if you there. were like committed, yeah, well, you, you could, could you could take you could it to the hang. spa. I guess it's another thing you could do, right? You could take it into the the the, the steam room or just say, anything like that. I still don't. For all that I love technology, I don't trust this. Like when I'm reading in the bathtub, I take a paper book, um, and it uh, more than once I have you know dropped a book no. and then spent like three days air drying it, trying to get the pages back to a normal state. But I don't want to like. I don't want to drop my e-reader or my iPad or whatever it is that claims to be mm-hmm. waterproof, fully submerged in hot water and learn the hard way that like it would it would have stood up to a little wine spill, but the full bubble bath is is yeah. too much for it. Not that I'm doubting Amazon's technique, but like I it, that would make me it would have the opposite effect that a relaxing bubble bath is intended. I think what you should do have. is get one, and the first thing you do is just throw it directly in the tub. Like just like exposure just, therapy, right? Just throw it in the tub I, and then pull it out, and if it works, you're good forever. And if it's sunk, right. you just you 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 don't you don't use it anymore. <coughs> it ships at the end of October for those of you adding things to your Christmas list or you know buying things for other people. Um, it's the we most ex- buy one for the company. It's the most ex- yeah. We could do a video. Um, it, oh yeah. Uh, it, it's it's the most expensive Kindle, and I think one of the most expensive dedicated e-readers out there because it's it's not a tablet. Um, you can do very bad web browsing and stuff on it, but don't don't do that. Um, that's a that's a nightmare hellscape. It starts at two hundred and fifty bucks for for an eight gigabyte model, which if you compare with say, um, I think right now if you're if you want a digital reading device, the your best all round choice, especially if you read comics, is the base model um, iPad, which is $329 now, because I, my preferred format for comics is on a big color tablet. I like it better than print. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, that's what I like to do, but you can't do that through the Oasis. But if you just do eBooks, it's a great deal. I mean, it's a beautiful device. It's easy to hold. It's, it's a really nice, um, if it's your daily driver for your reading experience, it's certainly worth the $250 to use. Um, let's see anything else about this. <laughs> no, I was thinking about just buying one and immediately taking it into the bathroom. That's what you should like, do. Just toss it right in there. There's, I don't know if it's still in print, but several years ago, somebody told me about a waterproof book called Aqua Erotica and all of the story, it's like a collection of stories and all the stories in it have some water mm. element, but the book itself is waterproof. And that is what I did. I just like, just chucked held it, it in under, there. You know. I just held it under the sink to be like, okay, that's real. Mm-hmm. It doesn't say here, let me see, I'm looking for, you know, because like, have you ever had like a waterproof watch or anything that's like, it's rated to, you know, X depth or, mm-hmm. yeah, it has, there's this IPX rating system and this is IPX8, which I don't think it's like, it's not something James Cameron is taking down to like look for the Titanic or anything, but this this says it can go to a pressure of, oh my goodness, 100 
uh, oh, kilograms per meter squared for three. Oh boy. Um, yeah, there's, I'm not sure. I guess. Come back to the surface. Yeah. My I, e, the, okay. So IPX7 protected against a water immersion of 30 minutes at a depth of one meter. And IPX8 is one better than that. So as long as you're not holding it underwater to read it and that your bath is not deeper than one meter, I think you're good to go. I think you're set. If you are, uh, if you're listening to this and you buy one of these bad boys, oh, yeah. give it a test run. Yeah, yeah, and, and take a video and, and let us know. Right, in, and don't put the yeah. bubbles in first because we put bubbles in and then throw the reader, and you can't see the reader. So I, that's a pro tip. <laughs> you, now that you're a bubble bath expert, yeah, I am. I, well, I have two small kids that like bubble baths. I know how this things work. Um, anyway, <laughs> Let's move on to our last. If they want to play with toys in a bubble bath, it's you know what it becomes. It's where's 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 the dinosaur teacup? Where is it? It's it's a mystery. No one knows. <laughs> In the murky depths. In the murky depths of bubble. Land. All right. Our last sponsor this week is Forest of a Thousand Lanterns by Julie C. Dow. This is coming out from Penguin Teen. It's about 18-year-old Shi Feng. Shi Feng is beautiful. The stars say she is destined for greatness, that she is meant to be Empress of Feng Lu, but only if she embraces the darkness within her. This is set in an East Asian-inspired fantasy world that's filled with both breathtaking pain and beauty. Forest of a Thousand Lanterns possesses all the hallmark hallmarks of masterful fantasy. It has dazzling magic, heartbreaking romance, and a world that hangs in the balance. If you're a fan of Heartless, Stealing Snow, or Red Queen, you're going to devour this stunning debut. The author, Julie Dow, is a Vietnamese-American who was born in upstate New York. She studied medicine, but came to realize that blood and needles were her kryptonite. So by day, she worked in science news and research, and by night, she wrote books about heroines who were unafraid to fight for their dreams. Forest of a Thousand Lanterns is her debut, and you can get more information about it by clicking the link in the show notes or finding it wherever books are sold. So thank you again to Penguin Teen and Forest of a Thousand Lanterns by Julie C. Dow. Um, let's do quick rapid fire news stuff. Um, Harvey Weinstein books gone. Hachette rightfully, understandably, pragmatically canceling Weinstein books. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure there's anything else to say about that. Um, yeah, it looks like the contracts that Hachette has with authors for the Weinstein Books imprint are going to be honored, but those books will be coming out under the Hachette umbrella instead of Weinstein Books, and then the Weinstein brand will be going away. Yeah, um, so that's good. Uh, Amazon Crossing. So here's a, speaking of underknown parts of the literary universe, Amazon Crossing, which is Amazon's effort to publish works in translation um has published a whole bunch of books more than 300 books in the last seven years from 36 countries and 21 languages um it is now expanding its submission website so that you can submit um the the website is readable in a whole bunch in 13 new languages i'm a little surprised this hasn't happened before if you're trying to gather submissions for translating stuff into english but at the, previously, it was only available in English. Now you can Arabic, um, Bengali, German, English, Spanish, French, Hindi, Italian, Dutch, Japanese, Punjabi, Polish, Portuguese, and Russian. It's to this point been an inv- invitation-only program, um, but it does accept book proposals from for translation into English across fantasy, historical fiction, literary fiction, memoir, thriller, and young adult fiction. And um, we were kicking around on Slack the other day that it is the largest publisher of 
works in translation in the U.S. That's Amazon wow. Crossing. So in the in the in the it, in the heavenly ledger of whether or not Amazon is good for books, right? I don't know where we stand in that scoreboard anymore. <laughs> this is one to keep in mind. I have to say, like you mm-hmm. can't you can't it forget is. about this part. Um, so anyway, also if you like to read in translation and you haven't heard about Amazon Crossing, um, and you're willing to deal with the big A, that's some that's another place to check out what what um, titles they're putting out. Yeah, I was so surprised by that. I don't read nearly as much in translation as I would oh, like to, either. but if you had just asked me, like, based on the things I know about publishing to guess about where the most books in translation are coming out of, I don't think I would have gotten to Amazon Crossing in my top half a dozen no, guesses. No, no, I wouldn't have either. I forget it exists. I do. Yeah. Um, All right. Some of it is we do, uh, we do traditionally published and we do bookstores and it's not there. I mean, that's the other problem. It's like, since it's Amazon Crossing, I don't think these, most of these titles get into bookstores. Yeah. They're not showing up on my doorstep, so they're not in my book mail. And that's, you know, for, that's part of my idiosyncratic pipeline problem. Mm -hmm. Um, The last little quick hit of news this week is we found out uh, earlier this week that on November 28th, Random House is going to release another book in E.L. James's Fifty Shades series. This one is called Darker, and it is the Fifty Shades Darker story, but told from Christian's perspective. Uh, So if you need a quick refresher, Fifty Shades Darker was the second book in the series. We already got Grey, which was Fifty Shades of Grey, as told by him. So I guess we're going to run the full gamut. The final one was Fifty Shades Freed. Um, So I would guess in a year or so that we'll be hearing that we're going to get that final one from his perspective as well. There wasn't too much noise about this this week. It was like, oh, well, Mm -hmm. she's carrying on. Like E.L. James's audience, I I think, is still into this. Um, So she's going to keep doing it. Gray sold about 4 million copies across all formats last year. So not terrible motivation there for Penguin Random House to keep going. I'll be fascinated. I don't care about this story other than I'm curious to see the sales for the second one. Because like the first one's Mm -hmm. a novelty. It's a one-off. People are buying it. Are we now into the place where E.L. James is writing to her base, to use a political term? And then how big is that base? Fascinated to know. Mm -hmm. Um, Because as we put it on the site, I mean, you know, some people are reading about it because they're interested, but it was pretty pretty uninteresting, uh, pretty uninterested response. You know what the big book release yeah. this week was? I just forgot. It's uh, Turtles oh, All the Way me. Down. John Green. Oh, that yes. was the big one. Sorry. Speaking of huge books coming out this week, I just realized that when you said four million copies, that sprung. I, mm. I think the prediction was that he maybe they're printing or they're expecting to sell four million copies of that book this year, which would be a remarkable feat um, for, a for John books, Green. Man. Anyway, uh, that's our show. Uh, let's see what do we got. You, I'll put links for uh, books are in my wheelhouse T-shirt. You can find those. How long are those available? I need to get on. Those the, are on sale through October sixteenth. Oh, so soon. By okay. the time you're listening to so this, you, yeah, yeah. If you're listening to this on Monday, you gotta you gotta get on um, your quadruped of choice and uh, and get over to the <laughs> store. Um, you can. I want to hear about. Uh, do you, if you are interested in the Oasis, have you used a a um, uh, waterproof e-reader? Are you in the market for one? Are you interested in buying one? Also, the other one we were asking about is um, if you know, if you're from one of these other worlds that the MacArthur covers, theater, painting, music, um, caring about the world, uh, and you can give us some perspective on the relative prominence of the names from the other fields, I'd be super curious about that. As always, you can find show notes to this and all back episodes of the Book Riot podcast at bookriot.com slash listen. Thanks to our sponsors, Quackery. Thanks to our sponsor, the 57 Bus. Is it the 57 Bus? Or is it yes. The 57 Bus. And then finally to um, 
uh, Forest of a Thousand Lanterns. You can go check those out wherever books are sold. Talk to you next week. Have a good one.